Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the I'm Just Saying podcast. This is your host, Jared Dawkins here. I hope all of you out there in the world and in the sports world are doing safe, taking good care of yourselves, and I hope all of you out there are being careful during this pandemic and making good, smart, and careful decisions. Well, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, the NBA playoffs have continued, and tonight the Golden State Warriors look to close out the Memphis Grizzlies in game five of the Western or in one of the Western Conference semifinal series. The Milwaukee Bucks take on the Boston Celtics in game six tonight. And I want to talk about the Warriors and the Grizzlies. And I'm just going to be real brief with this. The Memphis Grizzlies played as perfect of a basketball game as you will probably ever see a team play. They played their brand of basketball. They were aggressive, got to the basket as much as they could. They slowed the game down at times, more times than a lot of people probably thought they would or thought they should have. And Memphis just, they played their style of basketball. And the fact that they played their style of basketball and they made the game ugly and still just could not find a way to put Golden State away on Monday night was just absolutely, it just, it it really didn't surprise me, but then it kind of did surprise me. And here are some things that, here are some, some, some statistics that really blew my mind when you go back and you really pay attention to how that game went and to how Golden State won it. Golden State went 0 of 15 in the first half as far as shooting three-pointers. 0 of 15 in the first half. They didn't make not one three-point shot in the first half of that game. Secondly, at one point midway through the second half, close to the midway point, close to the end of the second half, the Grizzlies were up 78-69. to They were up by nine points. They were controlling this game. They, they were absolutely controlling it. And then, fast forward to late in the game, the Grizzlies were up 93-90 to 90 with about a little over three minutes left in the game. Golden State closes the game out on a 10-2 run, and they ultimately win the game 101-98. You cannot, like I said before, you cannot play as perfect of a game as the Golden State Warriors played and still find a way to lose that game. There, there, there is no way. But here's the thing about this. Golden State playing as ugly of a game as they played. I don't think I've ever seen Golden State miss as many wide open threes as they, as they missed in this game. Steph missed a few threes. Clay missed a few threes. Jordan Poole really didn't play all that well. And I'm watching this game, and I'm just thinking, like, literally at some point, and all of us have watched Golden State over the years, we normally, when Golden State gets into a rut, we normally wait for Steph or Clay to hit maybe two or three three-pointers in a row. And then once that happens, then the avalanche starts coming. There were moments where, where midway through the second half, Steph would hit Steph would hit a three, and you would think to yourself, okay, here it comes, here it comes. But then Golden State would drive right back, right back down the court, and Clay would miss a three. 
then Memphis will drive down the other end. They will get a dunk. Then the Warriors will drive back down the other end, and Steph would miss a three. And it's like, okay, like, come on, Golden State, pick it up. Get it going. But they finally got it going around midway through the fourth quarter, late fourth quarter, and that's when Steph hit a big-time three to eventually get Golden State back on track and and ultimately Golden State put the game away. But here are the numbers from that game that just really blew my mind. Memphis shot 42%, shot 9 of 35 from three-point range. Again, and I said this earlier on, in the series, Memphis is not going to win this series playing Golden State style of basketball. That is just not going to happen. They went 9 of 15 from the from the free throw line. Golden State shot 40% from, from the field. 9 of 37 from three-point range, but 20 of 22 from, from the free throw line. Golden State made up for not being able to hit a bunch of threes like they normally do. They made up for that by going to the free throw line as much as they did. They went to the free throw line seven more times than Memphis did. And then as far and then as far as the numbers go, Tyrus Jones had 19 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists. Dylan Brooks, 12 rebounds, 5 points, 8 assists. Desmond Bain, 8 points, 1 rebound, 6 assists. Jaron Jackson, 21 points, 5 rebounds. Steven Adams, 10, 10, 10 points, 15 rebounds. And then Golden State, Andrew Wiggins at 17 points and 10 rebounds. Klay Thompson, 14.7 rebounds. Steph Curry had 32, 5, and 8. It didn't feel like it. That 32, 5, and 8 was, it looked clunky and it looked ugly based off of the way Golden State played. Draymond Green had 12, had 12 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists. So, all in all, Jordan Poole came off the bench at 14 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists, and Otto Porter. Otto Porter really showed up in this game for Golden State. He had tw- he, And he had 12 points, 2 rebounds, and 3 assists. Bottom line is this. Golden State showed that they could play, that they can play ugly basketball too. And when you have a team that... Even though they played as ugly as they could possibly play and they found, but they found a way to win the game anyway. That's Golden State's way of telling Memphis that we can play, uh, we can play your style of basketball too and still beat you. And that's scary. That is just absolutely scary. Golden State played Memphis's style of basketball. They out Memphis, they out Memphis, Memphis. And that is scary to think about with the Golden State Warriors. They played a ugly, ugly ass game on Monday and still beat the Grizzlies. And I think tonight, I think the fact that Golden State knows that they have Memphis on the ropes, we all know Memphis is going to come out, ball out, play their ass off, play hard, and try and try to send this series back to back to the Chase Center. But I don't think that's going to happen. Not after, not after Memphis playing as well as they played, playing their style of basketball, and them still not being able to put Golden State away. I just don't see any way, shape, or form Memphis wins this game. I think Golden State goes to goes to Memphis tonight, and they close out the Grizzlies, and they go to the Western Conference Finals. Next up, I want to talk about. The Phoenix Suns. 
the Phoenix Suns last night. This is why the Phoenix Suns are the best team in basketball. Okay? And I really, really mean this. They are, they are the best team in basketball. Period. This game was back and forth between Memphis and Dallas. It was back, excuse me, uh, Phoenix and Dallas. It was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you kind of felt like what Dallas did in games three and four with Maxi Kleba hitting threes, Dorian Finney-Smith hitting threes, Luka, Luka, just Luka going off in the first half. You kind of felt like that, okay, Dallas could possibly steal this game. They could legitimately, they could legitimately steal this basketball game. It was four, it was forty, it was forty nine, forty six at halftime, and you just felt like, okay, if Dallas stays in this game, they could steal this. But then it got to a point in this game where, I mean, it it literally it literally got to the it literally got to a point where at the ten at the ten thirty four mark in the fourth quarter, excuse me, in the third quarter, Phoenix was just like, we're tired of this, and Phoenix was up fifty one to fifty, and Phoenix from that point on went on a thirty one to nine run to end the third quarter, and and go into the fourth quarter up eighty to sixty. And after that, after that, Phoenix just blew Dallas's doors off. They just blew their doors off. Again, again, Phoenix went on a 31 to 9 run around the 1034 mark of the third quarter. And then after that, they just, they just, they just went on to just blow Dallas out, and they went on to win the game 110 to 80. And for me, bottom line is for Dallas, and I really, really mean this, and I said this last episode, I said that Phoenix does not want this series to go seven games. I have a feeling, and this is just and this is just my thought. I feel like this series may actually go seven games. And I say that this Dallas-Phoenix series may go seven games because no team has won a road game in this series. And the fact that no team has won a road game in this series says to me that Dallas is going to go home, they're going to adjust, they're going to make adjustments, and I believe now, now it would not surprise me if Dallas wins game six. Do I think they will? No. Can they? Absolutely. But in my opinion, I think Phoenix is going to win game six and they're going to move on to the Western Conference Finals to face the Golden State Warriors. But it would not surprise me if Dallas wins game six, which which is going to be a really, really good game. Dallas and Phoenix and game six is going to be awesome. It would not surprise me if Dallas wins game six and then it, and then this series between Dallas and Phoenix ends up going into, ends up going to a game seven. It would not surprise me at all. But Phoenix, after they went on that thirty-one to nine run, and they just avalanche Dallas after that, you really saw how good the Phoenix Suns were after the third quarter, and most and, and about ninety to ninety-five percent percent of that fourth quarter. You saw how good they really, really were. But coming up next, ladies and gentlemen, 
It's going to be another edition of my NFL Division Highlight Spotlight where I break down the AFC East and why I believe the Buffalo Bills will dominate the AFC East again this season. And also, I'm going to tell you guys why a why a why a NFL free agent in my opinion his career may be over. That's coming up. Stay tuned. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show and welcome to part three of my NFL division highlight spotlight series where I break down each division in the AFC and each division in the NFC. And after I break down each division in the AFC and NFC, I give you guys my playoff teams for each conference and then I give you guys my conference championships conference championship game predictions for each conference and then I give you guys ultimately my Super Bowl prediction for the 2022 NFL season but with that being said I'm going to break down the AFC East so let's get started I want to talk about the New York Jets as we all know ladies and gentlemen last offseason the New York Jets fired former head coach Adam Gase, and they fired former GM Mike McCagnan, and they went out and they hired Robert Sala and, uh, to be their new head coach and Joe Douglas to be their new general manager. And as we all know, they went out and drafted Zach Wilson with, the, with, their, with their number one overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft. And it was a, re, it was a rebuild year. For the, it was a rebuilding year for Robert Sala coming, uh, coming over, being the new head coach of the New York Jets. It was a rebuilding year for the Jets. And we all know that the 40 that these that the New York Jets were not going to make the playoffs. And so they had they had the the down year that we expected them to have. So what did the Jets do during the offseason? They went out and for, and they went out and they upgraded their roster big time to help out Zach Wilson and to also rebuild that defense. Why? Because Robert Sala did wonders for that San Francisco 49ers defense that he that he was the defensive coordinator of for the last two to three years in San Francisco. So in free agency, the New York Jets went out and got TJ CJ Uzama, tight end, uh, tight end formerly of the Cincinnati Bengals. They went out and got former San Francisco 49ers guard Lankin Tomlinson, former 49ers running back Tevin Coleman, former Patriots wide receiver Braxton Berrios. Former Seattle Seahawks cornerback DJ Reed, safety Jordan Whitehead, veteran veteran safety, former Minnesota Vikings tight end Tyler Conklin, former Buffalo Bills running back Matt Breida, and former defensive lineman of the of the 49ers Solomon Thomas. And then in the draft, the New York Jets chose Sauce Gardner. Cornerback out of Cincinnati, who was the number, who was their number one overall pick, who was the best cornerback in the draft. They got Garrett Wilson, wide receiver out of Ohio State. Defensive end Jermaine Johnson with the 26th overall pick out of Florida State. Brees Hall, running back out of Iowa State. And tight end Jeremy Rutger, tight, uh, tight end Jeremy Rutger out of Ohio State. Bottom line with the Jets is just as simple as this. The, these next couple of years for the Jets, I expect them to be progression years. Maybe the Jets win six, maybe seven games this year. Maybe six, maybe seven is pushing it. They probably win maybe five or six games, maybe seven. 
And then over the next couple of years after that, they become a playoff team. But these next couple of years for the New York Jets, including this upcoming season, are nothing more than progression years for the New York Jets. But they are definitely going to be a lot more competitive this coming season and for the next couple of seasons with the roster that they have put together. They have put together a really, really good, young, young and pretty damn talented roster to be able to compete and to play hard for Robert Sala and to help out Zach Wilson over the next couple of years. So again, these are progression years for the New York Jets. They're not playoff years. They're not going to be in the playoffs. For, uh, they're not going to be in the playoffs the, in the next year or two. These are progression years for the New York Jets. And they and Joe Douglas did a damn good job of sending this Jets team in the right direction. Next up, the next up, the Miami Dolphins. As we all know, Brian Flores and Brian Flores was let go after the season and over the last couple of years Brian Flores really didn't trust Tua he and the reason why he didn't really trust Tua was simply because whenever Tua made a few mistakes what he would what what would Brian Flores do he would take Tua out put Ryan Fitzpatrick in and Tua never really learned from that he never really was able to learn from his mistakes and the Miami Dolphins defense was really really good but it all it all simply came down to Tua holding Miami back to a degree. So what did the Dolphins do in free agency? The Dolphins went out and got Teddy Bridgewater, quarterback to back up Tua, and then they went out and got Cedric Wilson, third option of the Dallas Cowboys, Chase Edmonds, running back, formerly of the Arizona Cardinals. They franchise tagged Mike Gesicki. They went out and they re-signed Emmanuel Agba for four, for four years, re-signed Preston Williams for one year, went out and got guard Connor Williams from the Dallas Cowboys, and but the big moves that the big moves that the Miami Dolphins made, they went out and traded for to they went out and got Teron Armstead, former left tackle of the New Orleans Saints. But the big big time move that we all know that the, the Miami Dolphins did was they went out and tra- they went out and traded. For Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver Tyreek Hill gave away five draft picks and gave Tyreek Hill a four-year, $120 million contract. And then to finish that off, they went and got Raheem Mostert from, from, the, from the San Francisco 49ers, and they went and got Alec Ingold fullback from the Las Vegas Raiders. And then in the draft, what did the Miami Dolphins do? They went out, they went out and added to their linebacker core by, by drafting Channing Tendall, Linebacker out of Georgia. Then they went and got another linebacker, Cameron Good, Cameron Good out of Cal, and they went and got Cameron. Excuse me. They went and got quarterback Skylar Thompson out of Kansas State to kind of give some depth to the quarterback position. And then they also went and got wide receiver Eric Eric Azukanma, wide receiver out of Texas Tech. So bottom line is this for the for the for the Miami Dolphins. The Miami Dolphins, obviously, they moved on from Brian Flores, and they hired Mike McDaniel, who came over from the, who came over from the San Francisco 49ers. So I'm pretty sure that's why you guys heard with all those roster moves that, that the Miami Dolphins made. You heard a lot of, you heard a few former former San Francisco 49ers names in all in all of those and in, in, in some of those moves that the that the Miami Dolphins made in free agency. 
Bottom line is this, and it's simply going to come down to this for the Miami Dolphins. With Miami, they've put all the weapons around Tua that they could possibly put around them. And it is simply because we all know Miami's Miami's defense is going to be really, really good. We all know that. But it's simply going to come down to the two. Can Tua... Can Tua not be the reason why the Miami Dolphins don't make the playoffs? Can Tua be the reason why the Dolphins make the playoffs? Excuse me, because like I said before, Miami's put all the weapons around Tua that they could possibly put around him. Tua cannot hold Miami back this year. Tua has no excuses. If he holds Miami back, Miami's going to move on from him after this season. It's just that simple. So, once again, Miami's defense is going to be good. Mike McDaniel, Mike McDaniel, the new head coach, is going to put Tua in position to succeed because of the weapons that are around him. And it's going to simply be up to Tua to, to make, the, make the necessary plays possible to put Miami in position late in the season to fight for a playoff spot. So, like I said before, this season is going to come down to Tua and how Mike, McDan- Mike McDaniel puts, puts Tua and those weapons that Miami's put around Tua in position to succeed. Next up, I want to talk about the New England Patriots. As we all know, the New England Patriots went out and... Last offseason, they just they spent money like it was nobody's business. They went out and they signed Matthew Judon. They signed Hunter Henry. They signed John o. Smith. They went out and drafted Mac Jones. The page and the Patriots made the playoffs with Mac Jones the year after Tom Brady left. But then what happened? They ended up getting destroyed by the Buffalo Bills in the wild card game, forty-one to thirteen. And what did the Patriots do to improve their roster? This thought. Uh, this this offseason, what did they do? They went out and and in free agency, the Patriots went out and traded for Mac Wilson. They went out and got Malcolm Butler back from the from the Arizona Cardinals, and they went out and got wide receiver Ty Montgomery, who's kind of a Swiss Army knife to a, a little bit. You could use him at wide receiver. You could use him at the Wildcat. You could use him in the backfield, and then and then in the draft, the Patriots draft was kind of weird, but at the same time. It's the Patriots. They do what they do. So what did the Patriots do in their draft? They went out and got offensive lineman Cole Strange out of Tennessee Chattanooga. They went and added to their wide receiver core. They got wide receiver Tyquan Thornton out of Baylor. And they drafted a couple corners, Marcus Jones and Jack Jones. Marcus Jones out of Arizona State, Jack Jones out of San Diego State. They got another running back in Pierre Strong out of Western Kentucky. And weirdly, they drafted a quarterback out of out of out of South Carolina, Bailey Zappi. And here's my thing about the New England Patriots. It's just as simple with the Patriots. I don't think the Patriots have enough weapons. I honestly don't think the Patriots have enough weapons to compete with the other teams in the AFC. I think the Patriots are solely going to rely on the running game like they normally have over the last couple of years. And the Patriots are going to play the way that they play. They're going to rely on their defense. They're not going to put Mac Jones in situations where he has to carry the team. And the Patriots and Bill Belichick are going to play the way that they play. They're going to play system-style defense. They're going to play gap-discipline defense. They're going to run the ball. Mac Jones is probably is probably going to make two or three throws a game. 
But I just simply don't believe that the Patriots have enough weapons to compete with other teams, not only in their own division, but other teams in their own, but, but other teams in the conference. So I don't even know if the, if the Patriots make the playoffs this year. That's just what I think. But bottom line is this past this offseason for the Patriots for, for free agency and for the draft and how the Patriots going and how the Patriots play during the 2022 season is just going to be how the Patriots play. And that's system football. Patriot way, do your job and we and we will see what the Patriots do, but all in all, I don't see New England making the playoffs this year. I just don't see it. And lastly, but certainly not least, the defending AFC East champion, Buffalo Bills. All I can simply say for the Buffalo Bills is 13 seconds. That's all I can simply say for the Buffalo Bills. 13 seconds. They were 13 seconds away from knocking off Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs and heading to the AFC Championship game. Actually, if they'd have won this game, if they'd have won that game against the Chiefs, they would have hosted Joe Burrow and the and the Bengals in the AFC Championship game. So the Buffalo Bills coming into the 2022 season, or coming out of the 2021 season, in free agency to better their roster and to and to better their chances of possibly getting over the hump and beating the Chiefs and getting back and getting to the AFC Championship game, what did they do in free agency? They went out and signed Roger. They went out and signed Roger Saffold to a one-year deal. They went out and got Daquan Jones. They went out and signed defensive lineman Tim Settle. They went out and got J.D. McKissick from the Washington Commanders. They went out there and and one of the big moves that they made in free agency, they went out and they signed Vaughn Miller pass rusher Vaughn Miller to a six-year, $120 million contract, which was really a, which is really a three-year, I'd say $96 million contract, but I digress. But then they also went out and got Jamison Crowder, formerly wide receiver, formerly of the New York Jets, and they went and they brought back Shaq Lawson, who they, origi- who they originally let go, who they originally let go the, the offseason before. And then in the draft, what did the Patriots, I mean, what did the, the Bills do? They went out and they drafted Kyer Elam, cornerback out of Florida, to add more cornerback depth to help out Jadavius White, who's coming back from a torn ACL, to help out Dane Jackson, to, and to make up for the loss of Levi Wallace, who left to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. They went out and they got James Cook, running back out of Georgia, to help out in the, to help out in the run game with with. Zach Mawson with Devin Singletary. And then they also went out and got linebacker Terrell Bernard. And then they went and they drafted one of, they drafted the best punter in college football and Matt Ariza. Bottom line is simply this with the Buffalo Bills. They look like they are one of the best teams in football. Josh Allen may very well be my MV, my MV, my choice for NFL MVP this year. I'm just going to come out and say it right now. Josh Allen is on another level, and he's been playing on another level the last couple of seasons. And I think he will do nothing but improve this season. So 
That's that's where I am with the Buffalo Bills. They improved their pass rush. They stacked they they stacked their defensive line. They got better on the offensive line. They improved their cornerback depth in the draft. Now it's simply now it's just simply going to come down to can the Buffalo Bills get over the hump? Can they get to the AFC Championship game? Can they beat the can they beat the Chiefs? Can they beat the Chargers? Can they beat a Las Vegas Raiders? Can they beat the Denver Broncos? Can the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen with the roster that they that they have? Because they have a because they have a damn talented roster. They have a very, very talented roster. The simple question for the Buffalo Bills is can they get over the hump and finally not just get to the AFC championship game, but can they get to the Super Bowl and win it? Because they have a damn good roster. They have they, they have a good ro- they have a roster good enough to do so so with that being said ladies and gentlemen after all after my breakdown of the AFC East obviously you guys know now it's going to be a dogfight to a degree it's going to be kind of a dogfight I think my I think Miami is going to put up a fight I think the Patriots are going to put up a bit of a fight the Jets not so much because they're in their rebuild mode they they're, they're having progression years but with that being said you guys know I'm picking the Buffalo Bills to win the AFC East. Next up, ladies and gentlemen, I want to talk about former star NFL safety Earl Thomas. As we all know, Earl Thomas was one of the stars of one of the better secondaries in the in probably the last 10 to 15 years in the Legion of Boom with him, Richard Sherman, Byron Maxwell, and Cam Chancellor. And Earl Thomas kind of had a kind of had a bad ending with the Seattle Seahawks. He got hurt, broke it. He got hurt, broke his lower leg in the last season of his career with the Seattle Seahawks. Came to Baltimore, and after literally after one year in Baltimore, Earl Thomas ended up getting cut because of an altercation that he had with Chuck Clark. When he when he punched Chuck Clark and the when he punched Chuck Clark during practice and the Ravens cut him and now and and now Earl Thomas is in a position where he tried to make he tried to make an NFL he's trying to make an NFL comeback and now he's even more he's even he's in even more trouble now with the law because now there is an arrest warrant issued for issued for Earl Thomas in Texas and the 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 arrest warrant that is issued for him is because he allegedly he, he allegedly violated the protective order based off of well I'm sorry he 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 violated a protective order and Here's the article that I'm going to read to you guys. And it says this from the New York Post. An arrest warrant has been issued for former NFL star Earl Thomas, who police says has violated a protective order two or more times in the past year by sending threatening messages messages to a woman concerning her and her children. According to the Austin American Statesman, the arrest affidavit stated Thomas could only communicate with the woman through a co-parenting phone application. The woman has told police that he will not download the app, reaches out to her by phone, and shows up places she frequents. 
According to the paper, the woman re the woman recently alleged that Thomas began texting her threats. On April 18th, police said Thomas told her to obtain told her told her he obtained two handguns. According to the report, he later texted her, quote, waiting on waiting on waiting on hand and foot while while I'll kick your ass. End quote. According to the according to the report, police say Thomas texted the next day. I hope you in the car with them, with him and the kids and y'all drive off the road. I, bottom line with Earl Thomas, and I'm just going to be real about this. Earl Thomas, in my opinion, will never, ever play in the league again. You would think that after he got caught by his ex-wife cheating on his ex-wife, Nina, you would think that after he got caught in a, in a hotel room with his brother, you would think that after his ex-wife caught him, caught Earl in a hotel room with him and his brother smashing another woman and his and his ex-wife holding a gun to his head and nearly blowing his head off, you would think Earl Thomas would learn. But obviously Earl Thomas has not learned. He's still in a grievance with the Baltimore Ravens to try to get some money back from them. But bottom line is this. I don't see Earl Thomas ever playing in the league again. He lost a, he lost a step or two when he came to Baltimore to begin with. But not only that, he's 33 years old. So I don't think Earl Thomas has learned at this point. I don't think he will ever learn. And I honestly don't believe he will ever step foot on a football field ever again. That's just my thought on that. He went from being one of the better safeties in the league to his to his skills physically deteriorating to now his off-the-field issues are taking over his career to the point where now no team wants to touch him on top of the fact that he punched a teammate here in Baltimore. So... I don't think Earl will ever play again. But coming up next, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for me to leave you with something to think about. Stay t uh, stay tuned. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. You know what time it is. It's time for me to leave you with something to think about. The year 2010. Why do I bring up the year 2010? Because that is the year that one of the greatest NBA finals took place with the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. Doc Rivers, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, the Los Angeles Lakers, Kobe Bryant, Phil Jackson, Pau Gasol, Lamar Odom, De Lamar Odom, and Derek Fisher. And as we all know, the late great Kobe Bryant and Pau Gasol led the Lakers to that championship. Kobe won his fifth ring. But my question to you guys is this. What if the Boston Celtics had actually found a way to win Game 7 of that 2010 NBA Finals? What if that actually would have happened? Do the big three break up like they originally did after the 2012 Eastern Conference Finals? Do they break up? Does Ray Allen leave to go to Miami? Do Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett leave to go to the Nets? If the Boston Celtics win the NBA championship again in 2010 for, for the second time for the second time in a three-year period. Is Doc Rivers still in Boston as the head coach even to even today? So think about that. KG, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen probably finished their careers in Boston. Doc Rivers is probably still in Boston even now, but with two championships. 
we we will never ever we will never ever know the answer to that question. What if Boston would have won Game Seven of that 2010 NBA Finals? What if? And by the way, that was a damn good game. But ladies and gentlemen, that's why this is what if. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the I'm Just Saying podcast. This is your host Jared Dawkins here. Thank you all for listening. I really, really do appreciate it. The NBA playoffs is taking place right now with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. Game five of the East of that Eastern Conference semifinal series is taking place. I hope you all enjoy it, as I as I know I will. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me. On, on Instagram at Quiet Soul 24 Q-U-I-E-T-S-O-U-L-24. You can follow me on Facebook at Jared Dawkins, J-A-R-E-D Dawkins, D-A-W-K-I-N-S. And if you would like to send me any, any sports topic questions that you may have, you can send them to me at my email, jdawkins24 at yahoo.com. Again, lowercase j Lowercase d a w k i n s twenty four the at symbol yahoo.com. Thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful night. I'm out. Peace.